0: Good to see all of you. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it and open to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 together this morning. Colossians chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me just add a word uh, to what Pastor Andy said a few moments ago about the Homefront Initiative. Homefront is our church-wide emphasis and focus in 2023. And uh, it's a focus on making Christ the center, beginning at home. Listen, our, our prayer at Moberly is that we would grow in Christ in such a way that we would see homes, neighborhoods, and nations changed by Jesus. But that begins at home, amen? And it begins with me. And so that's our focus in the next year is making Christ the center at home and I'm going to be laying out for you over the course of the next year three simple challenges that are it's going to encourage you to make Jesus the center. The first challenge is what I'm calling the Daily Formation Challenge. And that's just a commitment in 2023 that you make to read the Bible and spend time in prayer every single day in 2023, and God is going to use that to shape you into greater Christ-likeness. That's the daily formation challenge. It's something that any one of you can do. If you've never read the Bible before, you've never had a prayer life before, you can make that commitment to a daily time in Word and prayer. The second challenge is the family devotional challenge, and that's where we're encouraging families to have a weekly spiritual conversation in the home, for three months in the spring. And we're gonna be putting some tools and resources into your hand that will help you uh, help guide you into doing that. I know when we talk about doing a family devotional at home, some of us break into cold sweats, but we're gonna put some things into your hand that will help you to be able to do that. And then in the fall, the third and final challenge is the Marriage Conversation Challenge. And that's where we're encouraging those of you who are married to have an intentional conversation about your marriage with your spouse once a week for three months using a marriage tool, a conversation guide that we're going to be putting into your hands as well. That's seeking to increase the health of your marriage and make Christ the center of your marriage. And then all of that culminates November 4th and 5th with a home front conference, a Saturday and a Sunday, where we will have a a conference on making Christ the center of your marriage, the center of your parenting, and the center of your singleness. And so if you're not married, you don't have children, maybe you're single or divorced, something like that, and you wonder how… How, uh, how can I make Christ the center as a single person? We'll have an element of that conference just for you as well. And So you can find out more about all of this by going to moberly.org slash homefront. You can click to accept the challenge to uh, uh, spend time every day in God's Word and in prayer. We'll send you resources a couple times a month to encourage you in that, and uh, blogs and podcasts and so forth that will help you as you journey through that in 2023. Well, hopefully you found your way to Colossians chapter 3 by now, and uh, we're going to be looking at God's Word together as we see um, what one person called the wardrobe of the saints. That's what we're talking about this morning. You know, one of my favorite trees uh, that I've seen in in Longview and in East Texas since we've lived here, uh, I had to ask somebody what it was. You probably saw this tree. It's amazing. It has the most spectacular color. In fact, At one point, uh, it it, it was three colors at one time. It was green, it was red, it was yellow. It was just amazing. And my neighbor has one. So I I asked her, what is that? And she said, it's a pear tree. So I looked over there at that tree and I looked for pears. And there are no pears. And she said, well, no, it's, it's a fruitless pear tree. And I thought, well, that's the strangest thing to have a pear tree that doesn't have any pears. It's, it's called a Bradford pear. Some of you have a Bradford pear. And it's beautiful on the outside. It looks like it should just be full of pears. But when you examine it, there's, there's no fruit. Now, when I think about Colossians chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul is writing about the fruit that God wants to produce in our life. Here's the deal. God doesn't want you to just look great on the outside. He doesn't want you just to have external conformity to a certain set of religious rules. He doesn't want your life to just look beautiful. He wants you to bear fruit. Amen? And I, I, I do, I believe that, <clears throat> that too often in the church, we are very good at having a certain appearance externally while being fruitless internally. And if your life has really been changed by Jesus, if Jesus is really Lord of your life, listen, it is not about external appearances. Can I get a witness? It is about inward change that produces fruit. Paul is writing about that in Colossians chapter 3. He is writing that we are to be rooted in Christ so that we bear fruit For Christ And Colossians 3 and 4 describes what some of that fruit should look like. And so we looked last Sunday at Colossians 3, 5 through 11, where Paul says, if Christ is Lord of your life and he begins to produce growth and produce fruit in your life, then first of all, there are some old things that need to go out of your life. Just like when I got married, I was a a college student, had a bunch of old furniture until Amy moved in. And then when that change happened, there was some old stuff that had to go. That old furniture had to be moved out of my life. And when, when you come to know Jesus, there's some old stuff that has to go. Amen? Amen? Paul calls that putting off the old self. He says we are to put it to death. We are to put it away. We are to put it off. But then we are to put on the new self. There's some new things that God wants to bring into your life. And that's what Colossians 3, 12 through 14 is all about, which is what we're going to look at this morning. It's what you should put on as a believer, what Kent Hughes called the wardrobe of the saints. If you know Jesus... There are some things that you need to put on in your life, like a new set of clothes that God has for you when Jesus is Lord. And so what I want you to notice about the text this morning is Paul is going to tell us why we should put these things on, what it is that we should put on, and then what it looks like when, once we put it on. Okay, so I want you to notice the why, the what, and the how of, of the text this morning. So let's look together, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, Paul says, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. Now, that's the why. Here's the what. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, here's the how. By bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. And above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So Paul's going to tell the Colossian believers, and by extension us, he's going to tell us what we are to put on. He's going to tell us how we're to wear it. What does it look like once we've put it on? But I want you to notice where he begins. He begins by telling us why we should put it on. And he begins by telling us the reason that we put on these new clothes as believers, this new wardrobe of the saints is because of who we are in Christ. Did you notice how Paul began verse 12? He says, listen, I'm going to tell you to put on some things. As as people who know Jesus, there's going to be some things that you now wear and clothe yourselves with. But before I tell you what to do, I'm going to tell you why you need to do it. I'm going to tell you and remind you of who you are in Christ that will motivate your obedience for Christ. I love the way that Paul does that. He constantly grounds what we are to do for Christ with who we are in Christ. Aren't you thankful for that? The Bible's not just full of a list of rules that you have to obey, that that, uh, you have to, to obey in order to, like, merit God's approval. The Bible always grounds our obedience and our doing for Christ with our status and our being in Christ. Doing for believers, listen, doing flows from being. Amen. Who you are in Christ determines what you do for Christ. And so Paul begins here by reminding them of who they are in Christ. And he uses three words here that are really important. Look at verse 12. He says, you are God's chosen ones, holy, and dearly loved. So the first thing he reminds them of is, first of all, the fact that you are chosen. You say, pastor... Who am I in Christ? Well, the Bible tells us, first of all, that you are chosen by God. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That the God of the universe looked across time and space and chose you. That means that none of us is here on accident. You are here on purpose, that, that you are chosen by God. Now listen, we often talk about our salvation experience as us choosing God, but in reality the only reason we choose Him is because He chose us. Isn't that what John tells us in 1 John 4, 19, that we love Him? Why? Because He first loved us. The only reason I chose Him is because He chose me, and that's a wonderful truth. It ought to be deeply humbling. Because there is nothing good in me that would warrant or merit or commend myself to God. Nothing good in me that would say, God, look at how special I am. Choose me on the basis of how special I am. Nothing like that. God just freely chooses. That's the the way it works. So you are chosen. But then Paul says, you are consecrated. Notice the second word he uses there in verse 12. You are God's chosen ones. Holy, holy, holy to be holy means that you are set apart by God and for God. Uh, uh, It's the same word that Paul uses in chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 when he writes to those who are called saints. To be a saint doesn't mean that you have a perfect life. It doesn't mean that your life isn't messy. It doesn't mean that you have no sin. Nothing like that. It just simply means that you are set apart by God for God. That's what it means to be consecrated. You are set apart by God and for His purposes. It means that you are different from the people around you. Because of the work of Jesus in your life, you have a different purpose than those who are around you. You have a different calling. You have a different life. You have a different set of values. You have a different set of convictions. You should parent differently because you belong to God. You should do marriage differently because you are holy. You should work at your job differently because you're a follower of Christ. You should steward your time and thoughts and resources differently because you belong to God. You are consecrated, holy, set apart. Amen? So who are you in Christ? You're chosen. You are consecrated. But here's the third thing he says. You are cherished. Notice this, he says, you are dearly loved by God. You are dearly loved. Who are you in Christ? Well, in Christ, you are cherished by God. God looks at you, yes, you, and says, I love you. I cherish you. I treasure you. Listen, who are you in Christ? You are the object of the God of the universe's love and affection. Does that blow your mind? It should blow your mind that the God of the universe looks at you and you are special to him. Some some translations translate this, that you are dear to him. I find that as a pastor, a lot of people struggle to believe that because they look at themselves in the mirror and a lot of people don't even love themselves. But the God of the universe looks at you. He's crazy about you. Amen? He's crazy about you. He loves you. You are cherished by him. And that is not because of anything good in you. It's, it's not based, listen, his love for you is not based on your character. It's based on his character. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. And because he is love, he loves you. That is fundamentally God's very nature. Love. Now, that may be a little bit hard For some of you to wrap your mind around. If you're like me, maybe you grew up with a false conception of what God was like. I grew up with the notion that God is this angry old man in the sky who's just waiting for me to fail in some way so he can smite me, okay? I I thought God is distant, he's holy, uh, he's perfect, and he has a list of rules, and if I keep the rules then He'll love me. If I don't keep the rules, then he'll, He'll smite me. And that was my image of what God was like. But this tells us that God is a God who loves us. God is a God who cherishes us. God is a God who looks at you in all of your brokenness and all of your sinfulness, and He treasures you. He is affectionate towards you. He is a God who, listen, his love for you is not dependent on your performance. He just simply loves you and he loves you completely because of the performance of Christ on your behalf. Which means that when you wake up and look at yourself in the mirror, you can say, Who am I? I am not my failures. I am not what I have done or what people have done to me. I am loved by God. I am chosen, I am consecrated. I am cherished. That's who you are in Christ. I love the way N.T. Wright describes this verse. He just says all of these things, right? The fact that we are God's chosen, holy, and cherished, dearly loved people. He says, this is not dependent on our goodness, but on His grace. Not on our lovableness, but on His love. Isn't that a freeing thought? That God doesn't love you because you're lovable. God just loves you because he is love and he makes you lovely. Isn't that good news? So folks, that's who you are in Christ. And that is why we should pay attention to everything else in these verses. The reason that we should care about obeying God is because we're loved by God. So now with that in mind, I want you to now notice in, in verse 12, Paul begins to tell us what, the what of the passage. He tells us what we are to put on as God's chosen, holy, and dearly loved people. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, if, if it's true that Christ is Lord, and if it's true that Christ is producing fruit in your life, that you're, you're chosen, you're loved, you're, you're, you're set apart for Him, then this is what you ought to put on in your life. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is the kind of fruit that God wants to produce in your life. This sounds kind of like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? And then he uses, in verse 14, he uses a summary word. If you were to take those five words, right, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and if you were trying to encapsulate those in one word, The word that you should use is the word he uses in verse 14. Verse 14, he says, above all these other things, put on what? Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So this is the wardrobe of the saints. If Jesus is Lord of your life, and Jesus is producing fruit in your life, then these are the types of things that you put on. He says, first of all, put on compassion. The first element, the first article of clothing, if you will, for a believer is compassion. Now, compassion means that you have a deep sensitivity to the needs and the hurts and the sorrows of the people around you. It means that you have empathy, that you have sympathy. It's the ability to feel with other people. The word that uh, Paul uses here is a really interesting word. King James Version translates it uh, in an unusual way. The, The Greek word is the word splachna. Isn't that an ugly word? Splochna. Now, it's an onomatopoeia. You know what an onomatopoeia is, right? It's the word that sounds like its meaning. So a, the word splachna, here's what it means. It means guts. Paul is saying you ought to love one another with your guts. Now, that's kind of an unusual w- way to talk about that, isn't it? King James translates this bowels of mercies. Which is a very unusual way of translating that. We would say, you know, love each other with your heart. But so much of your feeling and your emotions is more like gut level love, uh, 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 gut level compassion. Have you ever uh, maybe been nervous to talk talk to somebody and you say, boy, I feel like I've got butterflies in my stomach. Anybody ever been there? That's that sense of like gut level. Paul uses that word to say, when Christ is Lord and He produces fruit in your life, you ought to have this sort of gut-level love uh, for one another. Then he uses the word kindness. Put on kindness. To be kind literally means lacking in severity. How many of you know know somebody who is what, what you would consider a severe person? Anybody know a severe person? Some of them are coming to your house for Christmas. They're just like severe, sort of stern kind of people. To be kind is lacking in severity. And that's what Paul says we ought to put on. We ought to put on kindness. One of the evidences of Christ's likeness is increasing kindness. In fact, it's really interesting. Paul uses a wordplay here. The word for kindness in Greek is the word krestos. Can we say that together? Krestos. You know the word for Christ in Greek is krestos. One letter difference. If you know Christos, you'll have krestos. If you love Christ, you'll live with kindness. So Paul says, put on kindness. Then he says, put on Humility. Humility is like lowliness. It just means not having an inflated view of yourself. It means not thinking of yourself too highly. Humble. And he uses the word gentle, gentleness. Put on gentleness. Some of you have a translation that says put on meekness. Now, meekness, for some of you, when you hear the word meek, that person was a meek person, you think weakness. Like if I'm a meek person, then that means that people just run over me, you know, like I'm a, a doormat. In, fa- in fact, uh, a, a, a comedian by the name of J. Upton Dixon said he was going to write a book for meek people called Cower Power, and he, he called them doormats. Now, that's an acronym for the dependent organization of really meek and timid souls if there are no objections. He said, their motto is, the meek shall inherit the earth if it's okay with everybody. And their symbol is the yellow traffic light. (laughs) I thought that was pretty good. Listen, folks, meekness is not weakness. It is strength harnessed for service. Meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. Strength out of control is dangerous, but strength under control, God can use. And that's what meekness is, gentleness. Paul says, put on gentleness. And then he says, put on patience. That just means, of course, long-suffering. That's the older word for that, long-suffering. It means uh, patient endurance. Curtis Vaughn says, this is the self-restraint, which enables you to bear injury and insult without resorting to hasty retaliation. That if if Christ is Lord of your life and he's producing fruit in your life, that you ought to be marked by a kind of self-restraint that enables you to bear injury and insult without resorting to hasty retaliation. Patience. Then in verse 14, Paul uses a summary word. The word describes all of the other words. If you were to take the first five words that he uses right there and just say, what's one word that really encapsulates all of this? He uses it in verse 14. He says, above everything else, put on love. That word is the same root word as the word in verse 12, that we are dearly loved by God. In other words, don't miss what he's saying. He's saying, listen, don't forget who you are in Christ. You are dearly loved by God, and therefore you should love one another. Because you are beloved, you should love What does it look like to be a person of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience? It looks like someone who is a person of love. So he says, put put love on. Love is, think about love as the one thing that binds all of these other virtues together. If humility and kindness and compassion and patience and gentleness, if that's the clothes that we're to put on as believers, think about love as the belt that holds it all together. Paul says, if you want to know what it looks like to live with Christ as Lord, for him to produce fruit in your life, it looks like love. It looks like a life of increasing love for the people around you. And by the way, it's this increasing love for other people that is evidence that we actually know Jesus in the first place, right? Didn't Jesus himself say this in John 13, 35, that people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another, Jesus himself is saying, the, the evidence that you actually know me, the way that the people around you will actually know that you know me, is they watch the way that you love one another. I, I love Pete Scazzaro's statement. It's so profound. He says that love is the measure of spiritual maturity. Love is the measure of spiritual maturity. What he means by that is if you want to know whether or not you are maturing in Christ, ask yourself this question, are you increasing or de- decreasing in love for people? Do you find yourself becoming a more loving person the further along you get in your walk with Christ? That's actually evidence of spiritual maturity. Sometimes we think spiritual maturity is something else, like we're really mature when we know a lot, about God or something like that. When our theological knowledge increases, our biblical knowledge, right? I can answer all of the questions and connect group correctly. My theology is orthodox and my, my Bible knowledge is, is impressive and therefore I am becoming spiritually mature. Schizero says, no, the measurement of spiritual maturity is love. Are you increasing in love For the people around you. You know, I can tell the people who are close with the Lord as they get older, they become more compassionate, they become more kind, they become more gentle, they become more patient, they become more humble, they increase in love. I want to be that way. The older I get, I don't want to get meaner and meaner. I want to become more kind and more kind. I don't want to become more harsh and severe. I want to become more gentle and humble. I don't want to become more crotchety. That's a Greek word. I want to become more loving. That's a sign of intimacy with Jesus. A sign that you really know the Lord and are walking closely with the Lord is that people who look at your life would say that is a person who loves really well. If someone said that about you, if they said, boy, this one thing characterizes them, would they say, that's somebody who loves really, really well. If that's how they're describing you, then then you are actually bearing fruit for Christ. Amen? Amen? And so Paul says, above all these other things, put on love. That's really what it looks like for Christ to bear fruit in your life. You become a person of increasing love for other people. Now, you might say, Pastor, how would I know if I am putting on love? What what would be the evidence that I'm actually doing this well? Well, thank you so much for asking that question. I want you to notice the final thing here in the text is that, that Paul tells us the how. What it looks like once we have put on love, right? When we have put on the wardrobe of the saints, What's the evidence? How would you know that you've done it successfully? Well, Paul's going to give us two evidences that we have actually put on love. He's going to say, if you've really put on love, then you're going to grow in the area of forbearance and forgiveness. The area of forbearance and forgiveness. Look at this verse 13. It's a small verse It's very powerful because Paul is fleshing out here what it looks like when you have put on these particular virtues characterized by love. He says, you do this, verse 13, by bearing with one another. Notice that, that is forbearance. And forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another, that is forgiveness. What's the evidence, what's the proof that you have put on love it is that you are growing in forbearance and forgiveness. Now, what is forbearance? He says that if you bear with one another. Here's the Andrew Standard Version. It means that you are willing to put up with each other, especially the things you don't like about each other. Can I get a witness? Now, don't raise your hand here, but I know that there are things in the people around you that you don't like. I can see it, Okay. <laughs> Because here's the reality, we are hard people to live with. Can I get a witness to that? We're hard people to live with. We're stinky, we're sinful, we're broken. And here's the deal, when you put a bunch of sinful people together, we rub each other the wrong way, we do things that we don't like about each other, we do things that are kind of annoying, right? You all have that one person in your connect group. All right, now we're… Am I stepping on any toe here? Uh, you know that teacher asks for somebody to give input and it's always that one person that says the weird thing and you're just annoyed by it, right? And so then that translates into trying to maybe in a passive-aggressive sort of way to kind of get back at them or toss them under the, the bus or say something negative to them or more likely say something negative about them. Paul says one of the ways that you grow in love, that you know that you have put on love, is that you are actually willing to, To bear with one another, that you're willing to put up with one another, the things that you don't like about each other. That's an evidence of growing love. Uh, It it looks like long-suffering. It looks like gentleness. It looks like humility and compassion and kindness. It means that you are willing to put up with the things you don't like about the people around you. One of the proofs that Moberly Baptist Church is growing in love is when we're willing to tolerate amongst ourselves the things we don't like Does that make sense? That we're willing to be patient with one another, that we're willing to put up with one another, that we're willing to bear with the people who are hard to bear with. That's forbearance. But then the second thing that Paul says, it's the harder one of the two. The second evidence that you have put on love is that you grow in forgiveness. Notice in verse 13, he says, and forgiving one another. If any of you has a grievance, against one another. What's a grievance? A grievance is anytime you have a fight, a fault, or a failure. That's what a grievance is. A fight, a fault, or a failure. And so here's what happens. You put a bunch of sinful people together. We start doing life together. There are going to be times when there's conflict and we hurt each other. Or there's a fault. Or there's a failure. And Paul Paul is saying here, listen, you're going to be tempted... In those fights and in those faults and in those failures to be mean to one another to be judgmental towards one another to to hold this over each other to try to exact revenge on each other but if christ is truly lord and he is producing fruit in your life and you have put on love the evidence that you have actually put on love is that when there are those fights and those faults and those failures Instead of seeking revenge or seeking to hurt them back or seeking to hold that over them, you are instead willing to forgive. To forgive means I'm not making you pay what you owe. That's what forgiveness is. It's releasing the other person from having to pay what they owe. You hurt me, And so I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to try to draw blood because that's what you owe. Forgiveness is saying, I I release my right to exact blood from you. I I release my right to carry out revenge against you. I, I release my right to make you pay me what you owe. That's what forgiveness is. And that's what we're called to do. It's actually the evidence that we have put on love now, folks, can we just be honest? That's not easy. Forgiveness, C.S. Lewis once said, forgiveness is a wonderful idea until we have something to forgive. And then it becomes really, really hard because we live with people that are hard to forgive. And when somebody hurts you, it's hard to release them. You've heard of the poem... To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. (laughs) It's hard to live with each other. Can I get a witness? It's difficult to forgive. I've heard of churches that have split because people don't know how to forgive. I've heard of family members that won't talk to each other, sometimes for years, because they don't know how to forgive. And here's the deal, folks. Unforgiveness is is a danger to you. Unforgiveness is a prison. Amen? Uh, Someone has said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Listen, the mark of love in the church is forgiveness. When you forgive, you are actually exhibiting the love that God has called you to put on. You're actually exhibiting the love he has for you. If you really love, then you will freely forgive. I think if we're honest, we would say that's really tough, really tough. So Paul gives us a motivator for this. I love the way he does this. He always, Anytime he tells us to do something, he always gives us a reason or a motivation for this. Notice what he says in verse 13. You should forgive one another, look at this, just, what does it say there, church? Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you are to forgive others. You see what Paul is doing here? He's saying, listen, I know forgiveness is hard. I know it is hard to release others. I know it's hard to say, I'm not going to make you pay what you owe. So I want to remind you, you've been forgiven. Don't forget the fact that God has released you from having to pay what you owe. Don't, don't forget that, that God has canceled your debt. And because you've been forgiven, you can forgive others. Because you are beloved, you can love others. Because you've been forgiven much, you can forgive much. You see, when, when we want to be unforgiving, it's because we, somebody's hurt us. And we want them to feel the sting of what they've done to us. But as believers in Christ, we recognize that Christ, who we have sinned infinitely against, He has received the sting of our sin in His death and He drained all the poison. So we can look to the people who've hurt us, we can absorb that hurt that they've caused, and we can respond with forgiveness. You remember the story that that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18. It's the story of the unforgiving servant. Everybody remember that story? It's a powerful parable that Jesus tells us of a man who owed a massive debt to a king. In today's money, it's like hundreds of millions of dollars. It's the kind of debt that you couldn't pay if you had a hundred lifetimes. And what that man who owed that great debt, what he deserved What he owed and should have paid was either pay off the debt or go to jail. That's really what he deserved. He deserved prison because he owes this massive debt and can't pay it. But the king was compassionate, kind, gentle, patient, loving. And instead of making that man pay everything that he owed, the king decides to cancel his debt, forgive him release him from his obligation to pay. Now, imagine if that was you for just a moment. Imagine that you had this massive debt, you're up to your eyeballs in debt, you don't know how you're gonna pay it, but the person that you owe it to just decides to cancel it and forgive you. Or, I mean, imagine here for a moment that you, just, that you were in over your head in credit card debt and you get a phone call you know, this week and your credit card company calls you and says, hey, Merry Christmas. We've decided to do this Christmas special and pick one lucky winner and you owe $50,000, but we have decided to cancel your debt. You're forgiven. You don't have to pay it. Now, some of you would start speaking in tongues on the phone right then and there. You'd be so excited, right? Because you had this massive debt you couldn't pay, and now you've been relinquished from the debt. You've been forgiven. So, that's what you expect of this man who's been forgiven much. You expect him just to celebrate and rejoice and go home. But There's another part of the story. Jesus says that the man goes home, and instead of just celebrating and enjoying the forgiveness he's received, he goes to a friend of his who owed him a much smaller debt, something like a day's wage. And the man says, you better pay me what you owe or I'm going to have you thrown in jail. It's a ridiculous story because all of us look at that and we're like, that's wrong! That's that's not just, you've been forgiven this massive debt. How could you go and try to demand payment of a smaller debt, right? And the story is ridiculous in how obvious it is. We all would look at that and say, that's crazy. If you've been forgiven that much, can't you forgive something smaller? You see, that's why Jesus tells that story is to get us to realize that we have this massive debt against the king of the universe and through the work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, God has canceled this massive debt. Who are we to then go to people who have hurt us in lesser, smaller ways and say, I will get my revenge. I will get payment. I will get justice. You must pay. The point is simple. If you have been forgiven much... You are called to forgive much. Amen? And Paul says this is actually the evidence that you are wearing the new self. If you have really put on the new self, what it looks like is love. If you really want to know what love looks like in terms of where the rubber meets the road, are you bearing with one another? And are you willing to forgive one another? So one of the signs we're actually growing in Christ is that we're willing to put up with each other a little bit more patiently than we normally do. Amen? Amen. And that when we hurt each other, when there's a fight, a fault, or a failure, that we are not just willing to forgive, but eager to forgive because we've been forgiven a great debt. So when we start to see more and more forgiveness happen, it's actually evidence of the fruit that God wants to produce in our lives. Amen? Let's bow together and pray. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I want you to know you can know Him in that way today. Through the work of Jesus for you, you can be dearly loved by God, forgiven a great debt. If you've never had the opportunity to turn away from your sin and put your trust in Christ, we want you to have that opportunity today. In a moment after we sing, there'll be folks out in the lobby, they're wearing badges, they're decision prayer partners, they would love to talk with you about how you can be forgiven of your sin, how you can be made new, how Christ can be Lord of your life. So you just walk out there and tell them, hey, I want to know more about Jesus and they'll talk with you about that. If you're here today and you know Jesus, then maybe what Jesus is calling you to this week is to bear with one another a little bit more. Maybe what Jesus is calling you to this week is to forgive somebody. Father, we know that this is impossible without you. The task of forgiving and letting go, releasing others from their right and from their debt that they owe us, that task is so challenging. We can't do it without you. So God, remind us of who we are in Christ. Remind us of your love for us. Remind us of our forgiveness in Christ so that we would forgive others. And Lord, we pray that our church would be marked by an increasing love for people as you produce fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' good name, amen.